It is good to sing a song like that when you're, uh, when you're hurting, right? It's good to be reminded of uh, what's true and what's coming, what we are uh, believing in and hoping for. So, uh, man, great, great time of, of worship and being reminded of who God is and what he's like and what he is doing. Well, we are uh, continuing in Isaiah. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we've been studying Isaiah for, for some time now. You came at a great uh, moment. We are in some beautiful, beautiful sections. Obviously, all of God's word is beautiful. Um, but there are places where it's very obvious that God kind of brings things to a crescendo as he's trying to uh, focus our attention on, uh, on what we need to see and know and understand. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, chapter 54 of Isaiah. And uh, you got an outline there. If you're a note taker, uh, grab that. We do encourage that. I want to take us back real quickly to last week. And uh, part of the reason is because it's so important for us to, as we're going through books of the Bible, that we're doing it in context. And Isaiah is so long, it's very easy to get segmented. But these, these chapters go together. So I want to help us remember why they go together. But I also, I just thought, wasn't it beautiful a minute ago when we were shouting out who God is? His identity and what we need him to be and what we're trusting him for. Didn't that, wasn't that good for us? Well, what we're going to study today is a lot like what we were just doing. It's shouting out who God is, what he's done, and what that means for us. And uh, it actually does start with where we were last week. We were in uh, the song of the suffering servant. And uh, let me remind you of that. Uh, a commentator actually called that passage the most central, deepest, and loftiest thing that Old Testament prophecy has ever said. That's pretty big. But that's exactly what it was. It was our Savior vividly described 750 years before he even arrived and in the most meaningful of terms that we can relate to now thousands of years later. So let me remind you of some of the things that were said about this suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. So shall he sprinkle many nations, speaking of his blood, serving as an atonement for their sin. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isn't that great news? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, stricken for the transgression of God's people. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. It's, it's fun for me to think about. I know the day's going to be awesome when we see Jesus coming, right? That's, there's going to be no better day. But think about the love that he has for his people. What must he be thinking as he's arriving and he is seeing all of these people that he died for, that he rescued and delivered. He shall bear their iniquities. He has. He has borne the sin of many and makes intercession, present tense, today for transgressors 
like you and me. That's great news, isn't it? be a great place for us to go back again and again and again to be reminded of who it is uh, that came on our behalf. Rather than just trying to imagine what he might be like, there it is. Very concrete. So, it's no wonder with that incredible description of our suffering servant, servant that chapter 54 begins with these words. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. It is this call to celebrate. Now that may sound a little bit insensitive and we're going to get more into this text in just a minute. But think about a barren woman, especially in that culture where having children, that was like, that was it. For a lady, that was your heritage, your lineage, that was your livelihood in terms of your family surviving. And you go to a barren woman, she knows she's barren, and you go, sing, shout, do a dance, celebrate. And, and she's going to go, why? But the answer was given to us in chapter 52 and 53. Because of your suffering servant, that ought to be cause for you to, to, to praise and worship and sing and celebrate. Obviously, this is metaphorically speaking and she represents the people of God in that day. And certainly she could represent the people of God in our day. So reading chapter 52 and 53 ought to move us to worship and yet oftentimes, uh, it seems that we're a little bit complacent there. That we lack something. Ray Ortland Jr. said this, The test of a church's faith is not only the wording in its creed, but also the gladness in its worship. Isn't that good? Now, I'll add to that. The gladness in our worship will rise to the level of two things. First of all, our need, our awareness of our need of God's grace. So, in other words, if you're aware that you're really needy, and then you see how much God delights to meet that need, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to worship. It's just going to come right out of you. You can't help yourself. If you're not aware of those things, you'll probably be less apt to do so. I love this painting uh, by Yang Sung Kim. It's called Hand of God. It uh, depicts Matthew 14, the scene where uh, Jesus comes to his disciples on the lake in the midst of a storm and Peter sees him and he says, hey, can I come out to you? And Jesus is like, sure, Peter, come on out. The water's fine. And uh, so Peter does. And I'm sure for a minute there, he's pretty excited. He's like, wow, I'm walking on water. And then he goes... Whoa, I'm walking on water, right? And he gets terrified, and then what happens? He starts to sink. He goes under. This is Peter's view from under the water. And isn't it beautiful to see the suffering servant reaching down beneath the water, a hand of God to Peter, and he's, he's inviting him, grab my hand, I can save you, I can deliver you, when you can't do it yourself. Isn't that a great, great reminder? So, with that in mind, okay, so we have this beautiful, incredible picture of our Savior. 
And then here's what I know. Every person in this room came in this morning and you've got these little thoughts and voices and uh, your past story and all that kind of stuff that, that really attempts to steal away the truth of what we've just been celebrating and thinking about, singing about, praying about. Um, in your outline, I said there's two sinister lies of the enemy. And the chapters that we're covering today are going to correct those two lies. Here's the first one. The first lie is that God's love for you is not vast enough to freely and fully restore you. So, I, you know, I've just obviously known a lot of Christians over the course of my life. And I know that um, we actually struggle sometimes more with believing God can love us and restore us than we can for other people. Can you relate to that? We're, we're very aware of all the reasons why God should have nothing to do with us. And the enemy seizes that all of the time to discourage us, disrupt our walk with God, and steal away the joy that we might express over having such an incredible Savior. The second lie is this, that your way of life as a professing Christian is of no real consequence. And that can, that can mean a lot of different things. First of all, it could be that you just sort of go, you know what, I don't know that it really matters what I do today or what I don't do, what I think, what I say, where I go. Uh, I, you just sort of minimize all that. I'm just taking up space and then someday I'm going to die and because I know Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven. So you just really minimize the significance of your life. Another way to think about that lie is that my life doesn't really matter to God. You know, he's sort of, he's taking care of the whole universe. He's got lots to think about. He's probably not thinking a whole lot about me. Little old me. I don't really matter to him or to this world or to what's going on around me. So once again, you just kind of rock along in life without any real focus, significance, um, in, intentionality. Those lies rob us of the lives that we should be living in light of the servant that we know and the servant that we have. So these two chapters are going to correct those two lies and help us think rightly about God and about ourselves. All, uh, all of this is going to be under the banner of God's everlasting love. You guys have probably heard the Hebrew word hesed referred to before. It's God's steadfast love, his covenant love. It's his commitment to his people that he is committed to taking them to a destination even without um, all of their cooperation. Like in other words, we get a lot wrong, but God stays faithful to us and continues to carry us along. He's going to remind us of that. And in chapter 4, he does it with um, three shocking reversals. He gives us three metaphors here, three kind of brief stories to help us see the unbelievable and again, this is, this is correcting that lie that you and I might think based upon our story and our habits, our struggles, our failures, all that kind of stuff that, you know, God, I don't know if he could really love a guy like me or ladies, a gal like you. Um, these stories tell us if God can do these things, then he is fully capable of loving you well, restoring you carrying you through this life in a beautiful God-honoring way. So the three segments are uh, verses 1 through 3 is the 
a metaphor of a barren woman. That's where we started a moment ago. Then four through 10 is an unfaithful wife. And then last is a desolate city. And the idea here, the focus is on restoration. Remember, uh, the people of Israel are in exile. They're under Babylonian rule. And they're probably all thinking at some point in that situation, we're hopeless. We're going to be stuck here. How in the world could God ever take a nation that's been sent into exile and actually bring them home and reestablish everything that they had and more where they came from? These three stories tell us that God can do every bit of that and even more. So let's start with verse 1. The barren woman. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of, who, of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. I love that. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So again, sort of keeping with the metaphor, this is a barren woman and it seems a little insensitive to ask her to sort of spread out her stuff, her build a, like a bigger tent, make room for growth of your family. She's barren and she knows that and she's going, what, what are you talking about? That's how Israel feels. But what God is calling Israel to do is to believe him for something that they cannot see. It does hearken back to Abraham and Sarah, right? He told them they were going to have a child. That child would actually lead to a nation. And then that nation would actually bless all of the nations of the world. God was calling Abraham and Sarah all by themselves barren to believe him for something that seemed absolutely ridiculous. So, like, let's just take for a moment here. What in your life... What is it about what God is doing in you and around you and through you and for you? What would just seem real ridiculous that he might do in your life? What is there in you that you just think, you know what? I just don't think that's ever going to change. I just think that's who I am. I just don't know how to get out of this exile that I'm in. Well, this story is meant to remind you that God's love for you, his hesed, committed, covenant love for you is able to fully and freely restore you and take you to places you never even imagined. So the second illustration, unfaithful wife. So the barren woman is called to expand by faith. The unfaithful wife is called to rest in peace. Look, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For the Lord has called you, verse 6, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she, has, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, says the Lord, but with great compassion... I will gather you. 
In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Just write down Hosea. Okay? Write that. That's a book of your Bible. If you haven't read that book before, that story. And uh, Gomer is Hosea's wife. She is unfaithful. Again and again and again, Hosea is a prophet and the Lord calls Hosea to love Gomer despite her infidelity as a picture for us to understand his love for his unfaithful people. So once again, we're, we're being told here through the lens of the suffering servant that God will not discard his people. Even despite, like this is the part, it's the scandal of it all. That what, in our culture, if you're unfaithful, everybody just goes, okay, we'll just end it. Just get rid of them. They're no good. That's your ticket out, right? That's, that's the world's answer to that. The Lord says, no. I am faithful to you because I'm faithful to me. He made a promise. He made a promise to keep his people despite all their junk. He says, I'm going to stay faithful to you. I'm going to continue to work in your life. I'm going to continue to offer you opportunities to live in intimate relationship with me and be fruitful. And you know what? You may not even take me up on all that, but I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. It's exactly what he is illustrating for us here. And so he tells the unfaithful wife, Israel in exile, and us today. Don't walk in fear. Your God is committed to you. Rest in peace. Now that doesn't mean that you excuse your sin. We're going to see actually in a minute ago, it means you go aggressively to deal with that so that you can stay close to the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful pictures of God's faithfulness despite our lack of faithfulness. And uh, just want to highlight there the word uh, compassion shows up uh, three times in uh, this section. And uh, there's another reference in the New Testament, grace upon grace. And I, I just when you think about the word compassion, uh, pity is associated with that. So it's a greater treating a lesser with great love and affection and care. So that is what the Lord says. That's how he thinks about his people. Even when he finds them in the worst of circumstances. So unfaithful wife, rest in peace. Your God is committed to restoring you. And then lastly, the desolate city. And this would have been very familiar to them because they were, well, I don't know if, some of those exiles, they saw Jerusalem go up in smoke. Some of them, they don't have any memory of that. All they know is it's in rubble. It's just flattened. It's gone. And so Jerusalem was the evidence of God's faithfulness to his people on earth. And with that gone, it raised a lot of questions about, well, how powerful, how good, how faithful is your God because from the world's perspective, they're just going, hey, Babylon came in and they have a different God than your God. And they just totally destroyed you and took you into exile. 
So is he really who you all say he is? And this is what God says. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. No weapon, you've probably heard this from the New Testament, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Put in parentheses, because of the servant of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So this is his promise. This is his picture. A restored city that everybody else in the world would think is impossible, is unlikely. Why would God do that? If, even if there were a God of Israel, why would he want to res restore an unfaithful, rebellious people? See, that's how we think. And he's saying, I'll do that because of who I am, not because of who you are. Now, here's how I know that. Go back to verse 5. These incredible pictures and words of restoration and assurance, they are what they are because of who said it. Now, look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Remember a minute ago we're shouting out the names of the Lord? The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Let me go through those. These are just beautiful. You could spend some serious devotional time just letting this soak, soak in. Um, you know, we've been talking about idolatry just a little bit through the book of Isaiah, right? Like every week. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah refers to the Lord as your maker? Like they've been confronted again and again for making stuff and calling it God. And he goes, let me tell you, you have a maker and he's God. And he's your husband. The most intimate relationship that you could possibly imagine. That's what your maker is to you. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not detached. He's not uncaring. He's your husband. He cares for you that way. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's the Lord of angel armies. It's, it is a, a title of power, of dominion. That's who our God is. The Holy One of Israel. Remember we talked about a holy God is one who is set apart unlike anything on earth. But see, it doesn't just say the Holy One. It's the Holy One of Israel. So even though he is set apart, he associates himself with his people. He's a relational God. Even in all of his uniqueness. And he's their redeemer. He does for them what they can't do for themselves. And then finally, the God of the whole earth. It's sort of as if I couldn't think up any other name. So I just said, the God of the whole earth. He's over everything. That's the idea here. It's like these promises, these assurances, this incredible covenant love that is demonstrated through the suffering servant, you can take that to the bank. 
It's absolutely reliable because of who God is. That is your assurance when those lies begin to circulate through your mind and you begin to doubt that God is who he said he is. So these three illustrations address the lie. God's love for you is not vast enough to freely and fully restore you. It is. His love is plenty big to uh, do that work in your life. And then in uh, chapter 55, it transitions a little bit to an invitation. Think again of our picture of uh, the hand of God, right? Uh, Jesus reaching down to Peter. So chapter 54 was the hand going down into the water. Chapter 55 is the invitation attached to that hand saying, grab on. I mean, if, if you want to live, you got to grab the hand. I'm, I'm here for you to save you from your best efforts, from the best that you have to offer. I'm here to save you from that. So this chapter refutes the enemy's lie that your way of life as a professing Christian is of no real consequence. It is. If we make destructive choices, it destroys our lives. And it hurts all the people around us and the people that are closest to us. Those are the people that we love the most. So our life really does matter. It matters to God and it matters to the people around us and it matters to the mission, the kingdom of God. So Isaiah addresses that with this invitation. It's a compelling invitation calling us to live radically in light of what God has done. The, the chapter breaks down this way. There are two calls two explanations of that call, and then two results. So it sort of repeats itself. The first call is in verses 1 and 2, and the second is in 6 and 7. So the first one, uh, I just put in your outline, it's come to the Lord's table. And I actually just love that picture. You know, isn't it just great to go over to someone's house and just to sit down and have a meal together, right? That's just a, a, an intimate form of fellowship, where you're sharing a meal and sharing time and sharing your heart. So here's the Lord's invitation to his exiled people and his invitation to you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Doesn't that sound great? Does it sound a little unbelievable? Like, does God really mean what I think he means? Like, is anybody in here thirsty? Spiritually speaking? Does anybody in here feel spiritually broke? Like you're just tired? You're weary? You're not sure if you can get through another week? This invitation is for you. He's saying, come on, you bring every bit of the thirst you have and you don't need a dime. It's free. Now, it wasn't free to get. It's just somebody else got it for you. Man, that's good news. The food and the drink, and I love that it's not just water. It's wine and milk. And it's like this, it's like Everything that you need, spiritually speaking, to sustain you. And not just to get by, but to, to flourish in this life. He's saying, come, I've got it for you and without price. Uh, 
Professor Tom Constable says this about the whole price of things. He says, people can either work for nothing or receive for nothing. Which will it be? Now think about that for a second. Because we love to work. We love to earn. We love to perform. We love to deserve. But according to God, you're either going to work and get nothing. Or you can receive for nothing. What do you think? I think I want to receive for nothing. That sounds like a pretty good plan. I like that. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you and I get for the very best that we can do on our own. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Whatever it is that I command you to do, whatever assignments that I give you in this life, take that yoke on you. For my yoke is light. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. And it will bring life to your soul. That's the invitation. The question is, why do you spend money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which will not satisfy? Verse 2. It, it, it seemed to me, I, I like to kind of think in pictures and whatever to help me understand stuff. So I, I thought of it this way. If we went to our nearby grocery store, whatever your favorite is, and can you imagine walking in the front door and the manager's standing there waiting for you and he says, hey, have I got a deal for you? We already know all the groceries. I know that's going to kill you guys for lunch. Just <laughs> hang in there. We're almost done. Uh, he said, I, I know what you want. I know what you need. It's all bagged up. It's over at the checkout number three. Just drop by there. Don't have to pay a dime. Just pick it up and head on out to your car. Now, so imagine that scenario, but here's how I respond. Man, I, you know, thanks so much. So thoughtful of you to, to, to do that for me. But you know what? I got, a, I got a bunch of money in my pocket and it's just burning a hole there. And you know what I really love? I just love all those displays. You know those pictures of like fruit and vegetables and bread and meat? I just, I love those. Could I just buy a bunch of those and take them home and put them up on my walls? I just, doesn't that sound dumb as a rock? But that's what we do spiritually. The Lord is saying it's all bagged. It's over in aisle three. It doesn't cost you anything. Just grab it and take it with you. And we're going, no thanks, I got it. I, I just, I'll, think, I'll think it through. I'll figure it out. I got a plan. Don't have to do that. Come to the Lord's table. Everything you need is right there. Second invitation is uh, in verses 6 through 13. And I just put in your notes, devote yourself to the Lord. And so, you know, the Christian life is not passive. You don't just coast. It's, it's very intentional, but it's very dependent. 
It's like you don't initiate stuff. You let the Lord go ahead of you. He shows you where you need to go and then you follow. That's the, that's the Christian life. It's dependence. So he says to his people, seek the Lord while he may be found. Which does assume that there will be a time when he can't be found. And I, I mean, I'll, let me just do a quick aside. If you're here today... And you have never in your life entrusted your life to Christ. In other words, you've said to him, I, I see now that I am sinful, that I am separated from God, and I need a Savior. I need someone to do for me what I can't do for myself. If you're there and you're here today, listen, seek the Lord while he may be found because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I'm not trying to scare you. In this, I'm not like this in fire and brimstone. I'm just saying... Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. And you have a golden opportunity today to come to the only one who can save your soul. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Great description of repentance. Turning from our way our thoughts, the best that we've got to offer, turning away from that to the Lord in a very responsive posture, just saying, you're God, I'm not, I need what you got, tell me what to do next, and then I'll do it. I'm just going to surrender myself to you, Lord, and follow you wherever you go. Key words here, seek and call. So that's Aggressively going after the Lord. Setting the mind and the heart on Him. In Colossians 3, it talks about that. You might jot a note there. And then forsaking and returning. And uh, in verse 10, it uh, mentions that for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return from the water... From there to water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that which goes out from my mouth. So this seeking and calling and all of that is all about coming to the Lord through his word. That's the, that's the reservoir. That's the place that we come to get his ways and his thoughts, all of which are higher than our ways and our thoughts. A familiar verse, jot down 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture inspired by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Like all of that, that's the stuff that we're supposed to feed on. So that we can experience the Lord as he intended. Well, let me wrap up with this. I want to go back to those two lies that... Uh, that we hear, maybe in different forms. And I want to put those in a positive light. In light of these two chapters, and I encourage you to go back and read these again, God's love for you is vast enough to freely and fully restore you, regardless of where you are today. Today. Now, God's going to finish the work when he returns. But he can do a whole lot of good between now and then in your life and through your life. And then secondly, your way of life as a professing Christian is of great consequence. And you have all the resources you need 
to live well. So I want to give you a, an opportunity to respond to this passage and uh, to this message. And I want to do it a little bit differently um, today. And it's, you know, it's not right or a wrong thing. It's just, I, as I thought about this, I thought sometimes for me, maybe you can relate to this, a physical response sort of helps to reinforce a spiritual response. So just kind of moving around or doing something a little bit different just helps kind of solidify what I'm doing. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask everybody to stand up. We're not going to dance. Unless you feel so led. Um, altars. We, we find altars throughout uh, the scriptures. And uh, altars were always places where people did business with God. Uh, that's where a lot of those exchanges would take place. And so what we thought we would do this morning is we're just going to treat this, these steps up front here like an altar. Just a place where you can come. There's nothing magical or anything about it. It's just a place. But it's you moving from where you are to a place where you want to engage the Lord and do business with Him. And remember, it's free. <laughs> the Lord just says, come. Are you thirsty? Come on. Buy without money. Because the servant has already done everything for you that needs to be done. So, for the next few minutes, we're going to sing. We're going to worship. And if you feel led, come on up here. And you can kneel uh, on these steps. And you can pray. Talk to the Lord. Invite Him to work in your life. If you don't feel led, that's fine. Do all that right where you are. But let's worship the Lord and engage Him. Seek Him while He may be found.